in the Gospels, Jesus gives many kingdom parables and many kingdom instructions. And one of the things that we know from Scripture is that the, the influence of the kingdom of God, Jesus said, is like leaven in bread. It's, it's like yeast. It works, and a lot of times you don't see it's working. And we, most of us, I, I would say, would prefer to see a large, huge outward working, and, and we want things like a, a Christian country and, and those sorts of things. But when you look at Scripture, what you find many times is the influence of Christianity is that behind-the-scenes kind of influence. And we're fortunate today to have uh, Dr. David Anderson here with Capital Commission who works at Richmond, and he's one of those people that has that behind-the-scenes Christian influence. I know that he has Bible studies with the different government officials. I know that he witnesses to people about the glories of Jesus Christ, and I'm quite certain, even though he hadn't told me this, that he also has opportunity to counsel people in difficult situations. And so we can be thankful that we have somebody up in Richmond, down, you guys say up in Richmond, down in Richmond in Virginia? Down, everybody says down, yeah, I know how that works, okay. Uh, I'm not going to ask if it's further down to D.C. or Richmond, um, we won't go there. But anyway, um, the, um, the, the person uh, that we have here, David, is uh, doing gospel work in Richmond and is influencing people for the gospel. And so he's going to not only give a report today, but he's also going to preach to us and share the word of God. So, Dr. Anderson, come on up here. Well, good morning, and thank you for that kind introduction, Dr. Edgecombe, and it is truly a joy to be with you again. We love your church. Uh, we've had many opportunities to come and be with you, and uh, we are very, very thankful for your gracious prayers and support, the blessing you have been to us over the years, and the many friendships that you have provided for us in this place, and we are just thankful for you. Um, I hope that everyone received the prayer list. If you didn't get a prayer list, just raise your hand. I think we got one of the ushers in the back that'll have the prayer list. If you didn't get one, just raise your hand real quick. It's the most important tool that I can give you to obey 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, that says, I exhort therefore, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we might lead a quiet and peaceable life and all godliness and reverence for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So if there's ever a way that we are to pray for our leaders, the threefold emphasis in the passage that tells us to pray for our leaders 
tells us to pray for their salvation. So uh, certainly you'll want to remember this list. I do want to encourage you. Uh, I want you to look at days uh, 29 and 30 on your prayer list. And, you know, I think I shared this last time I was here that the Lord has answered prayer in a very exciting way that all of our su Supreme Court justices in Virginia on days 29 and 30 have all made a, a public profession of faith in Christ. Well, if you look, there's a new one in red. Um, that's Justice Teresa Chafin. And I am very excited to report to you that she also is a believer and has made a public profession of faith in Christ. So we still have a unanimous Supreme Court when it comes to having made a public profession of faith in Christ. And by the way, we have a lot to give thanks for in Virginia in that regard. So just want to encourage you to continue to pray. Um, want to give you another quick update. You know, um, I passed out the uh, study notes or, you know, we pass out the study notes actually every week during session. And by the way, you can pick those up on the table uh, there in the vestibule as you head out after the service. Um, but it's a wonderful way to give them the gospel from week to week. You know, I do expositional Bible studies. And to be honest with you, I actually have them, you know, the legislators will read the study notes and I preach between the paragraphs is really what I do during the Bible studies. Um, but it's just a wonderful tool to be able to give them the truth of God's word from week to week. Well, it's fascinating was I think the second week of session this year. I was passing out the study notes and normally we catch them all when they're on their way actually um, to the Capitol on Wednesday. We kind of get between the General Assembly building or the Pocahontas building um, and the Capitol and they have to say hello to us on the way because we're right in between. And it's a great opportunity to put the study notes in their hand and invite them to the Bible study uh, the next morning. Well, this particular legislator, I had not seen him somehow on the way. In fact, I don't remember seeing him prior. So I handed him the study notes later on in the day in the General Assembly building because I was just around and of course I recognized him. So I handed him the study notes and he said, David, he said, I just want to tell you something. And I said, sure. He said, you know, I've never darkened the door of a church. I don't go to church. So that's just not my thing. So, um, and to be honest with you, I've never really read the Bible either. And to be honest with you, you know, that's just not the way I was raised. I just wasn't raised with any of that and I don't have anything to do with any of that. But he said, do you know that I, I've begun reading my Bible and the fact that I read your study notes? And he said, I, I love to read your study notes. He said, I just want you to know that. And I just want to encourage you to continue to do that. And I'm like, wow, that is a tremendous encouragement. So it was thrilling to have one of our legislators um, let me know how much the written um, study of God's word has meant to him. Uh, another quick update, um, you know, we have a couple of Muslim legislators. Uh, one of them actually, um, I've gotten to know him and I've had the opportunity to build a relationship for which I'm very thankful. And the Lord has as well given me the opportunity 
to provide for him what I believe is the very best book on witnessing to Muslims. In fact, you might want to write the name of this book down because it's the best book I'm aware of. And I've read several books in witnessing to Muslims, but it's called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus by Nabil Koresh. And it's a wonderful book of presenting the gospel in a very um, beautiful way, actually, uh, to, to a Muslim. Well, I, I gave that book to this Muslim legislator actually last year, but this year, as I was in his office seeking to witness to him, um, he, he was much more open than usual. And he, he told me to specifically pray for him. He said, you know, this is a time of searching for me. He said, for some reason, a lot of churches in my area have invited me kind of into their churches. So I'm hearing a lot more about Christianity. And he said, you know, the more I hear, the, the more I'm searching. I said, wonderful. I said, I just want you to make me one promise. Will you promise to read Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus? He said, you know, you gave me that book last year. I said, yes, I know. I said, have you read it? He said, no. I, I said, well, I only want you to promise me one thing. Will you read that book this year? He said, yes, I'll make you that promise. I will read the book this year. So uh, there's another way to remember our leaders in prayer. Um, uh, another um, Muslim legislator uh, that's brand new this year. In fact, we only have two. Um, this particular legislator, as I um, got chatting and, and in the office, noticed that this particular legislator had been a, um, in fact, you know, as, as we shared, um, this particular legislator had been a literature, American literature, early American literature professor in one of our colleges. So I said, hmm, if you're an early American literature professor, surely you're aware of Jonathan Edwards. She said, sure. Not only am I aware of Jonathan Edwards, I make all my students read his famous sermon. I said, you're serious? You have your students read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? By the way, if you've never read that sermon, I would encourage you to read it. It's, it's the most powerful sermon, I believe, that Edwards ever produced. And it actually um, was used by him to launch the awakening um, outside of his city. You know, they invited him down to Enfield, Connecticut. Um, he was in Northampton, Massachusetts. They invited him down to Enfield, Connecticut because they said, it, you know, nothing was happening there. He preached that one sermon and they were literally holding on to the pews. Um, wondering if they're going to drop into hell. I mean, it's a powerful message. In fact, I've, I've preached it, taught it in my own Bible studies in the Capitol. Um, but anyway, it was exciting to hear this legislator say that, you know, it gets read by all my students. I'm like, wow, that's incredible. And she then, then said, they even, I even make them write a paper on it. I'm like, wow, that's perfect. Then they have to read it for sure. And I said, you know, if you've read that sermon, you really need to read more by Jonathan Edwards. If you're, you know, you're early American literature. I have a book by Jonathan Edwards with several more of his treatises and so forth. Would you be willing, if I gave you that book, would you be willing to read it? And sure enough, another yes. 
and very, very exciting to see how the Lord is opening hearts uh, of our leaders to the Word of God in a variety of ways that you would never expect. I mean, I, I never would have expected that. Um, but just know it's because you pray for us and you pray for our leaders. That's what makes the difference. And that's what opens doors. It is, it's God who, who works. It's God who, who um, gives wisdom and, and gives the insight and gives the opportunities. So please take that prayer list. I folded it for you. So you can put it in your Bible as you read through your Bible. Just remember your leaders every day. It's divided into 31 days, so you remember them all once a month. All three branches of government, both state and national, so you can remember them all in prayer. Additionally, if you have a computer and you'd rather just get an update every day with your computer, you can grab one of these cards, pray1tim2.org, and you can go online, sign up, and you'll get a reminder every day to pray for our leaders. Uh, additionally, we covet your prayer, so please feel free to stop by the table, pick up our prayer card. Uh, for some of the young people, we actually have a, a children's prayer map that covers the entire world. So some of your parents may want to stop by, some of your children, uh, feel free to stop by the table, pick those up. Of course, my study notes as well. Um, actually, for any size gift, I'm offering my book as a special. And also numerous things you can pick up there at the table. Please stop by. If you'd like to uh, partner with us in the ministry, feel free to sign up for our prayer letter. All those things are there available on the table and you are welcome uh, to them. And I hope that you will stop by and uh, enjoy those resources that we have provided for you. But I want you to turn, if you would, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 18, verses 5 through 8. Acts chapter 18, verses 5 through 8. And by the way, this sermon I shared first with our legislators. So you're getting exactly the exposition that they enjoyed as we're walking through the book of Acts. So you get to enjoy that as well this morning. So I've titled the message, Paul Wins the Religious Leader in the Capitol. Very, very exciting in this passage. Verses 5 through 8. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there. And went to the house of a certain man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. What an incredible passage on the power of leaders, the power of influence. I mean, it is screaming in this passage. I love what Stan Toussaint says. He says, Crispus, the synagogue ruler with his family believed and his conversion undoubtedly was an impetus for many more Corinthians to be converted. So as we come to our passage, I think we should consider a few questions. 
First of all, what changed when Timothy and Silas arrived? Had Paul been building toward presenting Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, in the synagogue? And what was the meaning of Paul shaking his garments against them? And why did he say their blood was on their own heads? And did he ever go back to the synagogue after this confrontation? Is there significance in the fact that Titius Justice's house was right next door to the synagogue? I find this fascinating. And were there other synagogue leaders who had believed throughout the New Testament? And finally, did Crispus' household follow his influence just as the Corinthians certainly do later? Well, certainly Paul had won many leaders since receiving the Macedonian call. You remember that as he was wondering what was the wisest thing to do, he's there in Troas. He's asking the Lord what he needs to do. He's been stopped from going certain places. And then he has that vision from Christ, the Macedonian who stands before him in that vision and says, come over and help us. And certainly Paul is willing. And he sets his foot for the first time on European soil. And he comes to the city of Philippi. Now Philippi actually is not a capital. But in many ways, Philippi is actually more significant than a capital. You say, well, if it's not a capital, how could it be more significant? Well, there's actually a gold mine just outside the walls of Philippi. And that gold mine has 10,000 talents of gold that comes out of it every year. Now, who do you think owns the gold mine? Well, you got the Roman Empire and they're in control. So they own the gold mine. So all the battles that are fought over who will be emperor are always fought outside the city of Philippi. You say, why would that be? Well, if you're the emperor, you're the one who just like our president is the head of the armed forces. And you have to pay the soldiers throughout the empire. And how did they pay the soldiers throughout the empire? 10,000 talents of gold a year. It's a lot of money to take care of all those soldiers. So if you have the gold mine, you have the empire. If you don't have the gold mine, you don't have the empire. So every time the emperor is challenged, the battle occurs just outside the walls of Philippi. And it's all about one big gold mine. So Paul arrives in Philippi. And I find this fascinating. There's not even a synagogue. But Lydia, this woman who is trading in costly garments, not only receives Christ, but the Bible says all of her household even believes. But not only does Lydia believe there in Philippi, even the Philippian jailer comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ in the most unexpected way. You remember the earthquake? 
He's about to kill himself, and instead he receives the gospel. All of his house, he's baptized. Here we've got a government leader coming to Christ. It's a beautiful thing in Philippi. Of course, then the persecution arises in the midst, of, and that's why he's in the prison. And so when he leaves Philippi, he goes to the capital over all of Macedonia, which is Thessalonica. And he's only in Thessalonica for three weeks before the persecution becomes so intense, he actually gets chased out of town. But even in those short three weeks, the Bible says a great multitude of Greeks and many of the leading women believe. Now, it's fascinating in regard to archaeology, they have found the very gate Paul would have walked through. And the leaders of the city, their names are on that gate that Paul would have literally walked through. And I find it fascinating that three of those on Paul's mission team from Thessalonica called Politarchs, just as they are in the, in the scriptures, are later on Paul's mission team. It says the leading women. I think their wife got saved first. And then later on, they come to Christ. But three of these guys are later on Paul's mission team. It's absolutely amazing. So then, of course, he has to flee town. The persecution is incredibly intense in Thessalonica. He has to flee town, and he flees to the next closest capital, which is Berea. It's actually a provincial capital. And when he flees to Berea, an incredible thing occurs that not only are there many who believe, prominent men and women, but this is the only time we have in the entire book of Acts where the entire synagogue turns into a church. I mean, this is fascinating. And by the way, this is the only group of people whom the Bible says they studied the word of God to see if what Paul was saying was true. And because they did that, the entire synagogue believes and becomes a church, literally. It's astounding. By the way, um, we visited Philippi and, uh, I mean Berea and Philippi as well. Um, and I believe this synagogue may still be standing. They have a synagogue that dates way back to Paul's day. Absolutely amazing, just outside the wall in the exact place where it's described, etc. Um, and, and that same synagogue may still be standing today. But this synagogue, if the entire synagogue turned to Christ, then certainly the leader of the synagogue had to come to Christ as well. So the entire synagogue and their leader come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Absolutely amazing. He goes to the next capital, and this, by the way, is the capital over all of Greece, Athens. It's the mother of arts and eloquence and philosophy. They lead the entire world in language and thought. And there he has an opportunity to speak to the philosophical Supreme Court of the entire world. And Paul takes that opportunity. It's, it's really quite astounding because it's quite a rebuke. You remember how he starts? He finds this one altar. You know, they're, they're so superstitious. They got an altar to, uh, and a, something to every God. But then they're concerned 
whether they might have left one out. So they actually make an altar to the unknown God. And that is what Paul chooses in order to introduce the truth of the gospel to them. And you don't know this God is the point. And to those philosophers, he introduces the truth of the gospel. I find it absolutely beautiful that Dionysus, the Oropagite, comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The very first time he's confronted with the gospel. Absolutely beautiful. Absolutely amazing. And, of course, the church is planted. You've won a leader. The church is planted there in Athens. Incredible. But then he moves to Corinth, the capital of Achaia. Paul at this point is still all alone. He begins, of course, ministering in the synagogue and teaching in the Sabbath. But he has to get together with these two Jews from Rome, Aquila and Priscilla. In order to make ends meet, he continues to make tents. But if you look back over the cities he has been in, since the Macedonian call, come over and help us. Literally a spiritual Mount Rushmore is being built. It's absolutely beautiful of leaders who are leading in cities and starting churches. It's absolutely thrilling how the Lord used Paul here in these capitals of the Roman Empire. And we ask ourselves, who was the very first one? who was a significant leader that came to a saving knowledge of the gospel. I want you to turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. And here we will look at this one who is literally a king over the entire island. Now, you have to understand, as soon as Paul was called to be a missionary, he and Barnabas are together. John Mark is helping them. They've left Antioch. Of Syria, they've crossed the Mediterranean to the island of Cyprus, which, by the way, is not that far away. And this is their very first mission work. They land actually in a harbor city, which is actually the provincial capital there in the island of Cyprus. And by the way, Cyprus is an island nation just as it is today. And nothing happens. Nothing happens. They go through the island. In fact, we can pick up in verse 6. Nothing has happened so far. Verse 6. And when they had gone through the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now, by the way, let's just hesitate here for a second. Most people think that Paul's name changed when he was saved on the road to Damascus. I just want to let you know that's not where his name changed. Most people think that's where his name changed, but that's not where his name changed. Look at verse 9. Then Saul who is also called Paul, here's his name change, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and he said, 
Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went about around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed. When he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Astonished at what now? The miracle? Is that what it says? No. Astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Hey, Paul continued. He taught him the word of God. And the proconsul was astonished. And he comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And here is the very first king, as it were, over an entire island, entire island nation. And by the way, remember, they've not seen anything happen. And now they've won a leader, a church is planted. Absolutely beautiful. What is even more astounding, if you study the name of this guy and kind of how the Roman Empire works... Senators in, in, in um, nations that were friendly to the Roman Empire, they would let the senators rule over them. And so this guy actually is a senator from Rome. He'll be in Cyprus for a short amount of time, and then he will go and be back with his home in Rome. So what has happened here? Not only have we won a king over the entire island, but we see him carrying the gospel back to the capital of the entire empire. It's absolutely amazing. And of course, Paul takes his name. He had fulfilled his commission. He'd already won Gentiles. He'd already won Jews. Now he wins his first king, Acts 9.15. That's his commission. He wins his first king and he takes the name of that king and carries it with him for the rest of his life. It's absolutely beautiful. Albert Barnes says of Paul, his love to Christ was so great and his conviction of the truth so strong that he labored to make them make known to them the truth that Jesus was the Messiah. This is what Paul did everywhere he went. And so in Corinth at first, he's all alone in this most wicked city of the entire empire. Will the gospel prevail here? This is the most wicked city. And so we see, first of all, that the gospel or the Savior is proclaimed in verse 5. Corinth is the capital of Achaia. It's renowned for its wealth. It's, re, it's renowned for all its shipping. That it, it takes place over this little isthmus where they carry the ships back and forth across. That's what makes the city so wealthy. But as well, it is known for its wickedness. In fact, it is so well known for its wickedness that the name of the city has become a verb. It's astounding. And to Corinthianize meant to commit sexual immorality or perversion. They took the name of the city and made it a verb. Astounding. And on that Corinth, which stands high above the city of Corinth, stood the temple of Venus, the goddess of love. And from this temple came a thousand prostitutes every night to corrupt the city. This is the most wicked city in the entire Roman Empire. I don't even know of a city this wicked in the world today. 
This was a wicked city. Absolutely wicked city. And so it was known throughout the entire empire. Absolutely astounding. And certainly in the previous four capitals, Paul had been greeted with violent persecution, except in Athens, where in reality, there's a professional contempt for the gospel. They never invite him back to speak. They never rule. They never make a declaration on what he said. But at this capital of wealth and corruption, Paul knew that if the gospel could penetrate this city, the gospel could penetrate anywhere in the empire. And so, though Paul began in weakness, as we find in 1 Corinthians 2.3, he sought to persuade those in the synagogue through the word of God. When Silas and Timothy arrive, Paul enjoys three exciting things. One, he gets to have his team back. Second of all, he gets the good news from Thessalonica, this city that has been so persecuted, this, this church has been so persecuted in this city that Paul had to flee by night. And yet this church is standing strong. What an encouragement to Paul. And then thirdly, he receives a gift from the city of Philippi, no doubt from wealthy Lydia and the church that had begun in her home. And with that, Paul possibly then could begin doing as it spoke, speaks of in the, in the scriptures here. If this gift was significant enough that it would support his team, he no longer had to work building tents or making tents. And this would explain why it says in verse 5, he began devoting himself completely to the word. He evidently had sufficiently prepared his hearers in the synagogue so that he was now willing to solemnly testify to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. No doubt he had been building up to this all along. And now he presents it. David Cook tells us concerning Paul, he says, we are to persist in ministry despite opposition, knowing that the measure of Europe's greatness and the measure of any nation's greatness is the measure in which she has obeyed the word to the jailer. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. This is what Paul invited them to do. This is the hope of Israel. This is what Paul presents to them. Do they receive it? No, no, they do not receive it. In fact, the persecution ignites the moment he presents Christ as the Messiah. Absolutely astounding. And here are people who have known the scriptures. I'm sure he brought them to Psalm 22. I'm sure he brought them to, Psalm, uh, to Isaiah 53. These passages that are so clear in prophesying their Messiah. And yet... They rebel against it, which, by the way, would have included the leader of the synagogue. In fact, certainly, we know that Crispus would have approved of this resistance against Paul in the synagogue. So not only is the Savior proclaimed in verse 5 as well, secondly, the synagogue is abandoned. Now, to be perfectly honest with you, I, in my personal life, have never seen anyone come to Christ in this way. But it happens in this passage. It's absolutely astounding. But Paul obeys Christ. 
And the word for resisting actually is a military term that has the concept of putting soldiers in a ray for battle, which would require some leadership. Which, of course, would no doubt involve Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue. And though Paul would have showed them from their own Old Testament scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah, not only do they resist this word that speaks of being an array against them, the Bible says they blasphemed. They blasphemed. Here are Jews blaspheming their own Messiah as he's presented as the hope of Israel. That's off the charts. They blaspheme. And so Paul simply obeys Christ. Christ had commanded in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew 10, 14, Mark 6, 11, Luke 9, 5. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you, when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Mark 6, 11. Sodom and Gomorrah. I want you to turn with me to the little book of Jude. It's the, it's the book just before the book of Revelation. And here we have the strongest passage on Sodom and Gomorrah. All right, let's see what their judgment looks like. That's what Christ is talking about. And he's saying their judgment is more lenient than those who will not receive you nor hear you. Verse 6 of Jude. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Wow, what a powerful passage. Now, do you remember how Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed? Now, by the way, I've seen this massive crater. I believe it's in Arizona. It's, it's not that far from the um, Grand Canyon where, where just one meteor fell out of the sky and it produces this massive crater that is much bigger than all of your property here. I mean, it's a massive crater. I find it fascinating. Did you know that the lowest point on earth is the crater that was created when Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed? Even today, it's the lowest point on earth. It's the deepest crater. But what began as fire and brimstone from heaven continued in the fires of hell. I mean, can we get stronger than that? I don't think we can. I mean, Christ is using the strongest possible example of those who commit homosexuality, etc. And, and God said, fire from heaven, the, the, that fire begins the fire of hell. How astounding. And he says, the one that won't receive you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment for that city. Shake off the dust of your feet. Have nothing to do with them. That's what he does. He shook his garments 
And he says, your blood is upon your own head. I'm clean. Now, what in the world does that mean? In order to decipher that one, we need to turn back to Ezekiel chapter 33. Verse 4 says, And whoever hears the sound of the trumpet, he's talking about the watchman, and does not take warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, and he did not take warning, and his blood shall be upon himself. But he who takes warning shall save his life. Then he talks about the warning, uh, or he talks about the watchman who doesn't sound the alarm, does not give warning. He says, then the blood will be on the watchman. But he's reminding them of those who heard the warning but did not heed it. And he shook the dust off of his garments and he abandoned the synagogue forever. Paul never returns to this synagogue. He does, by the way, go right next door. And here we find that salvation is ignited. And again, by the way, I have never in my entire life seen anyone or heard of anyone coming to Christ in this way. But salvation is ignited here. Paul's passion for his people doesn't let him get very far away, which probably made the Jews even more upset in the synagogue. And the conscience of the man who presided over the synagogue was awakened. By the way, this is astounding. Suddenly, his soul is ignited with the light from heaven. And suddenly, not only is his soul ignited, but it ignites from him to his entire family. And then, as it were, in a, in a, in a, a, a sweep of fire, it sweeps across the city. And the Bible says that many hearing believed. What an incredible example of the leadership of one man coming to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is why, by the way, it's so important that we pray for our leaders. God has given them their position. God has given them their leadership. God has given them their influence. What happens when they come to Christ? Well, we see what happened here. We see the ruler of the synagogue came to Christ. Absolutely amazing. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Suddenly the entire city is aflame with the sound of the gospel from one man who turned from the synagogue and abandoned the same synagogue that Paul abandoned. Absolutely amazing. Ben Witherington says it was a notable accomplishment to convert a ruler of the synagogue and 1 Corinthians 1, 14 through 16 confirms his baptism. This verse, in addition, suggests that once Crispus was converted, many other Corinthians followed. John MacArthur states, Paul's passion to reach his fellow Jews with the gospel did not allow him to go far from the synagogue, which no doubt further infuriated the unbelieving Jews. And still worse from their perspective was the startling news that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. That astonishing conversion must have sent shockwaves through the Jewish community, which watched with mounting alarm as many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed. How incredible. And so, 
we need to pray for our leaders. We need to ask God to do this very work in their hearts and lives. You know, we're in a very, very strange and confusing time. And I'm going to close with this. I only ask one question regarding our times. How bad does it have to get in America for the churches of America to remember their leaders in prayer? Both in their public prayers in their churches every Sunday. That's what the early church did. They obeyed First Timothy 2. And every Sunday they prayed for their leaders. By the way, that's what they're most known for for the first 800 years of the early church. They're most known for prayer for their leaders. And privately, we need to remember them in prayer. How bad will it have to get before the church, we, God's people, if my people were called by my name, shall humble themselves and what? Pray. Seek my face. Turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Will you boldly proclaim the gospel? Will you pray for your leaders? Will you even be willing to pray and be a witness to those not just below you or beside you, but even leaders who are above you? May God strengthen each one of us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. May you use it in each heart and in each life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And for his sake we pray. Amen.